Today, we're going to be talking about litigation trends from an insurance industry perspective. And from conversations across the market in recent months, I know that this is something that people are worried about. There is a general acceptance that litigation is only going one way, it's only getting worse, and that that has an impact on insurers who are who are indemnifying companies who may get sued for a variety of reasons, in a variety of places around the world. But the real challenge for insurers is how to get arms around this issue and especially how to try and quantify the potential impact of increasing litigation trends over time. So definitely an important topic to discuss and very much looking forward to exploring that together today. Yeah, and I'm really pleased that today we have Lydia Sable with us to discuss this topic. So Lydia is counsel at Hogan Lovells and she advises insurers and reinsurers with a particular focus on complex disputes and commercial litigation. So welcome to the podcast, Lydia. Great. Thank you. Really good to be with you both today. Welcome to Insurance Uncut, the podcast where we explore the big issues impacting the general insurance market. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch with your questions or feedback via LinkedIn or our website. Let's kick off with this week's episode. Great. So before we get into today's topic, Lydia, just would you mind telling us a little bit about your career today and also just the types of work you do with insurers day to day? Sure. So I've been at Hogan Lovells for 15 years now and I joined as a trainee lawyer in 2007 and then I qualified into the insurance team. I started out doing a mix of work in the insurance sector, so some litigation, some regulatory advice. But over time, I've really focused my practice on insurance and reinsurance litigation. So I'm predominantly a litigator and do disputes work. So that means that my clients could be, depending on the dispute, corporate policyholders, insurers, brokers, or reinsurers. And so what that really means is that day to day, I advise clients on insurance disputes, whether or not claims are covered under insurance policies or reinsurance policies at the sort of pre-litigation phase where there are issues, maybe they can be resolved then. But if they can't, then, you know, I assist clients with resolving their claims through either the courts, through arbitration, or sometimes through mediation. That's fantastic. It strikes me this is an area that's only going to grow in importance over time. And one of the things that a lot of people are conscious of at the moment is the potential for growth in litigation regarding climate change and regarding ESG type issues. So would you be happy to just talk about the landscape as you see it for corporates potentially being sued on those types of issues and and then the potential insurance implications? Sure. I mean, it's it's a really big topic and there are a lot of issues to consider. And it's, I think, top of everybody's watch list, risk list. And there's a lot of different moving parts. I mean, if you think about maybe we just take climate change litigation as a sort of topic and have a bit of a think about that. That's obviously an increasing risk area that insurers are 
entirely aware of and that kind of takes different forms so there's obviously the kind of physical risks to that so how's that coming through on policies that cover things in the physical world but then there's the transition risk elements as well and then there's a sort of developing there are certain trends I think that you can see at the moment if you look at climate change litigation globally which you know have different types of impacts on insurers and and, and they'd want to be aware of how that risk landscape is developing. So I think you're seeing increasingly corporates targeted in climate change litigation as well as governments. You're seeing increasing numbers of cases outside the US, which I think is really significant, and that's only going to grow. You're also seeing in more recent years the range of claimants and defendants diversifying. So to begin with, the defendants were governments and they were carbon majors. But now you're seeing claims brought in different sectors like food, agriculture, transport, plastics, finance. Um, They're all being targeted in slightly different ways. So that's creating quite a quickly developing and moving landscape for, for insurers. Yeah, I guess what are those different ways in which they're being targeted? So what, what are the types of claims that we're seeing being brought against these firms? So I think you can kind of break them down a little bit. There are those that are, I think, focusing on trying to enforce climate change commitments. So that would typically be claims against government that made certain commitments to try and hold them to account on those. Then I think what's the really interesting area, particularly, I think, for insurance is what you might call contribution claims. And by that, I mean claims that are trying to hold corporates to account for climate change damage, climate change loss, or a failure to mitigate against the effects of climate change that they should have been aware of. And I am not quite old enough to remember the beginnings of the tobacco, big tobacco litigation, but I think you can see really interesting parallels between how those particular types of climate change cases are developing and how the tobacco litigation developed. And basically what you're seeing is activists are taking different strategies to try and formulate these claims. Because at the end of the day, we're all emitters. Everybody's an emitter. And so when they get the bullet in the chamber and you get a legal formulation of that type of claim that's going to work and is found to work, then you know you can see that that's hugely significant and it's going to give rise to, to all sorts of claims in that sphere. But at the moment, it's a this is a nascent area, but one that has huge potential. And, you know, you just need one big win and it's going to change the landscape. The word you used earlier was contribution claim, which sounds a bit scary. Is, is that the notion that although you may not be able to say that a particular corporate caused a climate change problem, the fact that they were a big contributor to it might be enough to sue them? Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of just my term for it, contribution claim. It's it's not a sort of term of art that you see out there in connection with climate change. But that's how I think of it in my head as, you know, you, you essentially you are being sued because you contributed to climate change by emitting or you failed to mitigate against against doing so. And I guess the the other thing I potentially see as, as a growing area is you talked about one of the types being holding governments to account when they're not meeting commitments. But I guess with more and more companies putting out disclosures and providing information and setting their own targets, are we going to see companies also being kind of held to account for not meeting their targets or not taking appropriate action? Yeah, that's another huge, absolutely agreed, another huge potentially growth area. And I think that, you know, as the 
disclosure regime develops, so too are claims related to misleading disclosures going to develop as well. And sort of alongside that as well, I think there's sort of greenwashing claims about claims that you make again about your products or about your services and how green they are. And that's something that regulators are hotting up on already. So, you know, in the UK, I know that the FCA, the Advertising Standards Agency, the Competition and Markets Authority, those kind of how green is my product? How green have I said it is? Does that actually stack up? Those are areas that regulators are looking at closely. And obviously all of that feeds through into insurance because sitting behind these corporates are their insurers. Greenwashing is interesting because I suppose it might be easier for litigators to pin blame on a company for greenwashing, for for making false or exaggerated claims, than the, the much wider issue of to what extent they contributed to climate change. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's also going to be a kind of question of fact and degree as to to what extent any statement that you made is actually accurate or not. You know, so you can see, you know, where you see litigation is where claims aren't clear cut or the potential consequences are so huge that it's a kind of bet the company case. So you'll fight it anyway. And now you, you might certainly see those sorts of cases in the sort of ESG climate change arena. But I think with the greenwashing, it'll, it's interesting because it will be a question of fact and degree to which the statement that you've made about your product or service is actually accurate. And you can see sort of fertile ground for, for arguing about that. You know, and, and the terms that are used, you know, they're quite vague. Is it, It's sustainable. You know, it's eco-friendly. It's, you know, those are quite loose terms in some ways. So does that mean it opens it up to more litigation because the terms are, are loose or does it cover them a bit more because they're being vague? <laughs> Do you know, that's really interesting. I think it kind of cuts both ways. Yeah, some wiggle room is good, but equally with wiggle room comes a degree of vagueness as well. And I guess the people bringing these claims at the moment, I think you mentioned earlier, is mainly coming from activist groups. Is that right? Or are we seeing other bodies or groups of people bringing these types of claims? Again, it depends sort of which bit of the claims landscape you're looking at. But broadly, yes, there's a lot of activist activity at the moment. And as I said, with the sort of what I would call the contribution claim, activists are incentivized to bring those claims. And sometimes it's done on behalf of claimant groups who may have suffered the effects of climate change in a particular region where yeah, the physical effects of climate change are being felt in an adverse way by them and an activist, you know, maybe helping to bring a claim on their behalf. But I think, you know, as that line of litigation develops, becomes more robust, and if it does gain traction, then you can see that there's going to be huge financial incentive for other people to be bringing claims in. And, and I think, you know, the activists will lead the way, but then, you know, it's going to go more mainstream, I would have thought after that. And talking about financial incentives, one of the things I was keen to explore with you is the concept of litigation funding and sort of having only recently become aware myself that there is a very sophisticated industry providing funding for litigation of, of this sort. As an insurer, I'd be very worried about that, but I suppose it's a fact of life. You know, how does that industry work and what are the implications for future growth in litigation? You're absolutely right to identify it. It's a really significant feature of of the litigation market and increasingly so. If you boil it right down, in essence, litigation funding is where a third party invests in a lawsuit in exchange for a share of the profits if the 
case is successful. So it funds the claim, and if the claim is successful, then it will recoup a percentage share of a pre-agreed percentage share of the damages. So the idea is that a good legal claim is like an asset. It's potentially worth money, but there's a degree of risk and the litigation funders are becoming increasingly sophisticated in the way that they evaluate claims, you know, the ones that they choose to fund and, and the reasons why, the degree to which they will fund. And there are, you know, lots of different ways of, of structuring it, but essentially that's what it is. So, you know, it is, if you like, powering the litigation landscape because without that, a potential claimant before bringing an action would have to be aware of their exposure both to their own costs and potentially to the other side's costs and that may those potential costs may be such that they're not in a position to bring the claim but of course if you can get litigation funding on board then suddenly you're able to bring a claim that you maybe wouldn't have been able to bring otherwise and so it's sort of powering the market from below and the other thing that's happening is that previously Claimant law firms would often, if you like, invest in claims themselves. So where they were bringing claims or are bringing claims on behalf of claimants who can't afford the legal fees, the claimant law firm might, in a sense, have invested in the claim itself, you know, hoping that out of a suite of claims, enough will be successful that, you know, there will be a business model there. But now what you see increasingly is that claimant law firms are teaming up with litigation funders who are also, you know, investing and that's enabling the claimant law firm to take on more clients and to bring more claims. And so it's it's really it's driving the market in that way. And are there ethical challenges with all of this? For example, litigation funding, meaning that it's easy for someone to tie up an unsuspecting corporate in litigation for years and years because there's a huge amount of money bankrolling them. That is certainly and it can be an effect of litigation funding for certain because if the litigation funding is enabling a claim, a long running claim to be brought where without it, that claim wouldn't be brought, then clearly that's a negative for the corporate defendant. But in terms of pure ethics, there's there's nothing wrong with it. It's all within inside, it's all inside the rules. I guess is there anything else on the kind of, kind of climate change trends or features we wanted to cover? If you're thinking about climate change litigation, what you're dealing with is a situation where the risk landscape is really changing quite rapidly, but the wordings, the insurance wordings for different lines of business are out there in the market doing their thing. And so the question is, how are they going to respond as and when the risk landscape develops? And so what you see when you get this new types of claims, you're always more likely to see insurance related litigation because the insurance wording is going to need to be stress tested against this new and unforeseen type of claim type of litigation. And an absolute paradigm example of that was the pandemic, because particularly in the business interruption market was because that came along completely out of left field. And the question was, those wordings were out there in the market, did they or didn't they respond? And so I think what we may be beginning to see a little bit in the London market, something that I would expect to increase is thinking about climate change exclusions and whether or not it's appropriate to be putting those into certain types of policies. But, you know, and obviously a, a policyholder and an insurer are going to have a different perspective on that. But either way, where where that might be beginning to happen, you're going to need to be careful to make sure that the exclusion does only what it's meant to do and, and, and no more and doesn't accidentally take away 
too much of the of the cover. And I guess some of the lines of business that we're kind of talking about here. So DNO is probably one of the biggest areas where that's that kind of wording needs to be looked at and watched. Yes. And I think DNO is particularly exposed to some of the changes in risk landscape around reporting because you can see how that might easily feed through into into DNO claims. And you are seeing in the climate change litigation landscape, you are seeing cases that are talking about personal responsibility for things as well. So the DNA market's under a lot of pressure at the moment. And, and, you know, you can really only see that continuing for the near term. And how similar or different are the litigation trends from activists on the one hand versus shareholders on the other? That's an interesting question. I think they're focusing on... They're focusing on different things. I mean, you see a lot of the activist activity specifically relating to climate change and its effects. But I think where you're seeing shareholder actions is in the ESG space more generally. So, you know, it could be um, particularly around the around the reporting. And that's obviously because the interests of the shareholders are directly affected by those things in, in a way that it's not so relevant for, for an activist organisation. Talking about ESG a bit more broadly, and then specifically, maybe I guess more on the S, we've kind of discussed, me and Charlotte on the podcast before, about how is that just going to become probably the attention that climate change is getting now, but in five years' time or X number of years' time, social issues will be getting a similar level of attention. Do you see that in your work you're doing? Is that something you think might happen? I think that it is. And I think it might turn out to be very prevalent, but perhaps ultimately not quite as high value because if you like s claims can be quite small in value potentially but hugely significant from a pr perspective for a, for a corporate so i i'm not you know the significance of that sort of developing strand of litigation is something that corporates are you know super attuned to at the moment but is that going to feed through into significant insurance liability in the same way dollars, euros, sterling wise, I'm not quite so sure. But, you know, obviously, I think, you know, supply chain, modern slavery, exploitation type claims would all fall under that S bracket, and they can have very significant financial price tags. So, you know, it's a bit more varied, I would say. The sort of thing that I have heard people in the insurance industry talk about is the notion that some lesser developed nations who maybe historically had less sophisticated legal systems, you know, they're obviously catching up. And part of that is that it might be more costly for a corporate to be deemed to have done something naughty in that part of the world. And whereas previously, rightly or wrongly, they might have gotten away with certain practices, they're now much more likely to be held to account by that local set of laws. How do you see that evolving? I mean, I think I think that's true. I think ESG-related litigation in its broader sense is, I think, here to stay. And you're going to see that growing and playing out in different ways in different markets. But I think there's also a sort of distinction between where are corporates going to be exposed and where are you going to see claims, developing claims for things that they are liable for. But then there's a separate question of where you have an insurance or a reinsurance contract covering risks. Where are those disputes going to be heard? And so there's a, there's a distinction between those two things. And so 
what's very, very important for the insurance and reinsurance sector is that where you write an insurance or reinsurance contract, you get you make a sensible selection about the governing law and the dispute resolution mechanism that's going to govern that contract. And of course, you have, you know, and that takes both parties to the contract to agree on that. But that's how you can control where you are going to litigate your insurance or, or reinsurance claim if there's a dispute. And so typically, you know, what insurers and reinsurers want to do is they want certainty. They want to pick a jurisdiction where they know how the legal system operates. There is a degree of certainty in the governing law. There's a well-developed insurance and reinsurance legal regime in that jurisdiction. And obviously that that jurisdiction that you choose doesn't have to match up to the underlying subject matter of the risk and where that's located. That could be anywhere in the world, but you might find yourself in court in the UK because that's how it's... I know something we chatted about prior to this podcast was uh, dispute resolution techniques and, you know, the variety of those sort of approaches and, you know, how, how is that evolving? So again, it's a similar point when you enter into a contract of insurance or reinsurance, the parties can set out a mechanism by which they both agree that, that any disputes will be resolved through that mechanism. So if you're thinking, so your, your classic choices are through the courts, arbitration, or mediation arbitration can take different forms but there's different things that you might weigh up so if you were comparing say resolution of a dis- of an insurance dispute by the english courts versus arbitration well if it's through the english courts it will be public but an arbitration is private so and historically it's sometimes thought of as less expensive because the procedure isn't set in stone in the same way that it is in the courts. Although I'm not really sure that that holds true anymore. I think that big ticket arbitration is probably just as expensive as big ticket commercial litigation. But, you know, that's sometimes one of the considerations. But of course, the problem that you sometimes get is if significant market issues insurance market issues are being decided through arbitration, you're not getting a developing body of law. And we've seen that a bit recently with the COVID issues as they've come through to the reinsurance market. The perception is that those disputes are being resolved by way of private arbitration, which means that nobody's relying on the decision in any other, you know, it's all being decided afresh each time. You're not building up that body of body of law. So there are there are different factors to consider. And then mediation, you wouldn't typically provide for mediation as your only mechanism in an insurance contract but you can always choose to mediate at any point in a dispute and it can often be a really useful way of breaking deadlock when you've reached a certain point in a dispute. And would mediation ever have a role to play in a, a lawsuit between let's say activists and a corporate? I mean there's no reason why not. But not necessarily a common approach? No I mean it really it really depends on the case and mediation is never successful if the parties don't go into it with at least being open to a settlement, you know, that's the only situation in which it's it's going to work. So you need buy-in from both sides. But if you have that buy-in, it can be very effective. Do you think generally firms are doing enough to help mitigate their litigation risks? Do you mean corporates or do you mean insurers? I mean, I guess both. Probably corporates in the first instance. Yeah. I mean, I think big corporates have very sophisticated risk departments, compliance departments, legal teams. You know, they will have various functions which are, you know, looking 
to guard against litigation to get their arms around those those sorts of things so i think i think a lot of thought is given to it you know say if you're acting in a particular sector and there's significant regulatory risk you know i think corporates do a very good job of looking at, at what's coming but you just can't do a perfect job all of the time and i think for the point of view of the insurance sector i mean their business is risk so they're in one sense they are past masters at analyzing risk because that is what they what they do but you know it is important to keep an eye on the on the bigger trends as well I suppose something we haven't touched on very much in our discussion so far is personal injury type lawsuits or employment type lawsuits, which, you know, at a micro level might be quite small, but there may be some common causes, you know, things like asbestos litigation obviously touched much wider groups of people. And I suppose there are still potential risks like that out there. Is that the sort of thing that also benefits from things like litigation funding? That's an interesting question. I think... I mean, litigation funding can be small scale or big scale. So an individual claimant may be able to obtain funding to bring their claim. But I think where you are more likely to see it in a way that's significant is where you have groups of claimants all with the same complaint. And, you know, that's where it begins to to be more of a significant risk on insurers' radar as well. You know, and I, I know that some years ago, there were questions about mobile phones and you know whether there was going to be significant risks from those i mean i have to say i do wonder i can't quite see how it might crystallize but i do wonder about claims related to the amount of technology that we consume today and sort of long-term effects of that basically wherever you've got a new untested product or something like that that has been taken up en masse in a sort of untested way but equally you know as a lawyer it's difficult to see exactly how that would i mean you'd imagine there's lawyers looking into vaping and the potential right yeah because that could be absolutely massive in scope if it was provable that there that there was a harm being done there but you know we've got such sophisticated regimes now for products passing safety standards and so on and of course what from a where there's going to be liability, there's probably going to have to be knowledge of some kind of wrongdoing on the part of a company. So, you know, again, with that kind of sophisticated health and safety, it's difficult to see. But, you know, it, it, it's an obvious area. I mean, sort of post-asbestos, the next big one, I think, was noise-related hearing loss. Yeah, and there was a huge spike in in activity in the sort of, you know, about 10, 12 years ago, certainly in the UK on that. And obviously the asbestos claims were, from a lawyer's point of view, hugely interesting because there were some public policy decisions that were made that affected the law on how the insurance for those types of claims should be treated. And you can see a parallel there a little bit with with the pandemic where you've got an issue that is so significant within a particular market that you need some kind of external input to help remedy it. And I think, you know, coming back to ESG again, I think that's another reason why it's just so significant is because it it has the potential to be a systemic issue. And where you get a systemic issue, you're really putting pressure on the fundamental principle of insurance, which is that the premiums of the many pay for the claims of the few. But that struggles to hold up where you've got a systemic issue. And that's when people start to say, 
this resolution or compensation for this systemic issue is not the sole responsibility of the, of the insurance market. This is a matter for government. Well, I was certainly amongst those who were surprised that the insurance industry was simply asked to pay up when every event in the entire world was cancelled at the same time. To me, that seemed to violate slightly the principles of the many playing for the few on contingency insurance. But, you know, I guess the insurance industry was deemed to be able to afford it. And so where you go. Yeah. And, and you know, I think with some of it, it's frankly been a bit of a lottery as to which particular wording you certainly in the business interruption market, which particular wording you happen to have written or to have purchased. And I think, you know, sort of stepping back a bit from that, at the end of the day, where you're talking about an insurance or reinsurance claim, if it gets to the courts, the courts will be looking at the words in the policy. That will be the starting point and the end point. And so that is something that the market has control over, the wordings of the policies that it has out there. They have to be, insurance protects against fortuities, they have to be sufficiently flexible in their language to be able to encompass the unforeseen because that is what the nature of insurance is. But at the same time, you need to balance that with wordings that are stringent enough, targeted enough, the architecture works so that you know what it is to the best that you can, what it is that you're what you're underwriting. Well, thank you so much, Lydia. That's been it's a pleasure. Such a fascinating, probably, you know, we've dipped our toe in the pond, it feels, in terms of the, the world of litigation and, and your world. But thank you so much for coming along this week. As always, we like to end with some fun questions. So firstly, what would your dream job be outside of, we normally say financial services, but, but, but I guess professional services. Professional yeah. services, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a hard one because it pains me to say it, but I think I'm very well suited temperamentally <laughs> to the job that I do. So, and I enjoy doing it. But so my answer is going to be something that I have absolutely no aptitude for whatsoever, but I'm a bit of a secret Formula One fan. And I guess I say, no aptitude for this whatsoever, but I think it must be absolutely fantastic to be a Formula One driver. I think they're a very particular breed. Or if not that, then maybe one of the strategists on the pit wall. Perhaps that's getting closer to something that I could actually do. I think that's one of the best answers we've had to that question. <laughs> I think we've had one other Formula driver. Actually, I think that, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're a second home Very home good. Driver. I mean, it's so interesting. Lawyers, massively risk averse. Yeah. So clearly, you know, they're, they're very comfortable taking <laughs> Other risks. End of the so spectrum. as I say, no aptitude for it. But, uh, <laughs> Great. And then the second fun question is, if you were to invite Jess and I round for dinner, what would you cook for us? <laughs> well, some years ago, I uncovered at my parents a dinner party diary that my mother kept from sort of, I don't know, 1980s. And it was absolutely fascinating. You think that food, well, I guess food does go in and out of fashion. And I found it really, really interesting. And so I thought, right, I'll start one of those. And so I've got an excellent dinner party diary from my 20s. And then if you were to come over now with two small children, you'd probably be as likely to get fish fingers and baked beans as anything else so I think I'd have to dig out this diary find something that worked and repeat it oh that sounds magic that's a fantastic bit of like history I think to just like be able to look back on that exactly and she you know she'd written down who would come and when and you know what she served what she'd given them for breakfast if they'd stayed over and you know you don't realize that in years to come that might be really interesting to look so back special. on so yeah yeah thank you so much it's been great 
it's a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for having me. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast is brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, Megan Frost and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.